Charlene. In these 20-minute podcasts, I talk with memoir writers about their books, their lives, and their writing process. Sharing like this helps us all connect. As we listen, we learn about the world through the eyes of others. Their stories help us expand our views and empathize more deeply with each other. It's my pleasure now to invite you to listen in to this episode of Life Story on Soul Sciences. Kristen Rademacher and her wonderful book, From the Lighthouse. Welcome back, Kristen. Thank you for having me again. Kristen, we were talking uh, in between the uh, times when you were here and when we weren't recording about religion and spirituality. And would you give our listeners an idea of what role that played in your life as you were coming through these difficult losses? Um, sure. I thought a lot about that recently. Um, while I was in the, in the, the thick of grieving and sorrow, I felt, um, very supported in, in some ways. And when I started to get back on my feet again and the world started to feel normal and I was functioning, there was a part of me that missed that period of time where I was grieving. And I thought, that's really crazy. Why would you miss that? But there was something about that time that felt like I was I was tapped into a different um, way of thinking and of feeling. And now I have the perspective that I feel like God was with me <laughs> at that time. Um, I had no real concept of God in my life when I was going through that, God came to me much later. Retrospect, I thought, that's why I missed it, because I felt like I was I was connected to something really comforting and nurturing. Um, and it was only really 14, 15 years later that I recognized that was probably what I was missing at the time. But in the meantime, you had done some exploring. You spent some time with Buddhism. Mm-hmm. I did. I um, I had this sense after I sort of got back on my feet again that meditation would be really helpful for me. I was um, pretty anxious a lot of the times, and I my understanding of, of meditation was that that would help me with my anxiety. My brother is a practicing Buddhist, so that was influential and I was working with a therapist at the time and he was also a practicing Buddhist. Um, and so I thought this is a great thing for me to do. So I found a couple of different Buddhist groups and ultimately settled into this Zen meditation center here in Chapel Hill. And um, I did get a lot out of that. 
it was really helpful in helping me to learn how to settle myself and to slow myself down. And that was part of my larger wanting to simplify my life. And, um, and that I'm, I'm very grateful that I found my way to that and did a lot of reading about Buddhism. Um, and then it eventually felt like there was something missing that I wasn't getting from that. And what the best I could articulate are that I could articulate at the time was that I wasn't feeling nurtured. I felt more settled, but I wanted to <laughs> feel nurtured. Yeah. Um, so I sort of left that behind and through a series of um, sort of strange events, I found my way to this Anglican church that I'm a part of now and I have been for the last two-ish years. Um, and it's been very resonant with me. I feel like I've really landed in the right place. And um, all the experiences that I've had, including practicing Buddhism for a while, were important to me. And I think were part of what led me to where I am right now. Well, that's beautiful. I'm very curious, though, what were the strange circumstances that got you connected to the Anglican Church? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the Reader's Digest version is I am in a book group, and a couple years ago, our book group read Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, which is a fabulous novel. If you have not read it, I would recommend it. And the, the main character in that novel is a minister who's dying, and he has a young son, and the whole book is written in the form of a letter that he's writing to his son about his life. And... Um, it's a very, very moving story, and I was just sort of wrapped into it immediately, and by the end of the book, I remember sitting at my kitchen table reading it, finishing it, because my book group was meeting like in two hours, and in true Christian form, I was <laughs> the last minute finishing it, and I just started crying at the end, and I couldn't understand why exactly I was crying, but I thought, pay attention to this, and then I got real curious about Christianity again, started doing a lot of reading, found my way to a C.S. Lewis book, and of course he's written a ton about Christianity, and that really resonated with me, and it was about two months long, I was going on a hike with my partner to um, our one of our botanical gardens in Chapel Hill, and it was a Sunday morning. And the gardens were closed, and there was a big sign that said, this church meets here on Sunday mornings. And I thought, what church meets at the Botanical Gardens? And I went to their website, and the very, very first thing that popped out on the screen was this C.S. Lewis quote that they had on their website. So I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I need to go visit. So I did, and as it turns out, my very first visit there happened to be on the first day of Advent, which is the beginning of the Christian calendar, and I've been going ever since, and yeah, transformational. Yeah, that's so beautiful. As, as I was saying to you, uh, Carl Jung is very clear that as fast as people can get to the religion of their youth or their childhood, which I take to mean Western people are more comfortable or have roots in Western worship traditions. Now, it's an awkward time for us, of course, because we're also importing a lot of Eastern and traditional um, traditional Eastern practices. 
what would you say are the differences? You, you are in the spirits in both. Differences between Eastern and Western? Mm-hmm. Between meditation and church prayer, for example. Um, church prayer for me is, is a beautiful group experience. Whereas Zen meditation, we're in a group, but we're very much, um, if you've ever done Zen meditation, it's you're, you're facing a wall, you're, you're on your own. There's a chanting period at the end, which I always really enjoy, but it's, um, it's a very, it felt like a solitary experience. And I was not opposed to solitary at all, but there's something really beautiful to me about this group experience in, uh, in, in a Christian, in a Christian church where you're, you're singing together, you're praying together. Um, I think it's, it's equally important to have a, a separate solitary prayer life at home, which I do, but this coming together to, to worship as a collective is, it's just really beautiful to me. It's really meaningful to me. And so that's, that's one of the big differences that I can point to. Certainly agree. I, one of the spinoffs, or people call it a spinoff from the Christian church, is community. But as you're pointing out, it isn't a spinoff at all. It's built right into the practices. So those are wonderful. Now, when you were writing your book, how did you feel about those experiences? Because as you've said, there were several years between when you wrote the book and when the loss of your child had taken place, the loss of your baby mm-hmm. had taken place. Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly enough, I finished the book before I found this church. So if I were to write the book again, which I'm not going to, <laughs> but if I were, I would have a, I would have a really different filter. And I think that's, that's probably an experience that all memoirists would have. It's wherever we are in our lives right now is, is what determines our thinking and our perceptions and, and our impressions. So if I were to write this book right now, um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I feel like in the throes of my grief, God was really with me. I didn't think of it as God at the time. So in the memoir as it's currently written, that that theme doesn't really show up. There's sort of hints of it, but not really. If I were to write it now, I think that would play a much larger role in how I perceived what was happening to me at the time. Yes, uh, I agree from your, your description. The book for me, around those darker passages where you're so angry on the one hand, and you are, the anger's coming out naturally, and you're going to, of course, and you're so brought down by this experience, and you're so honest in the writing, but then there's this slow kind of almost unconscious return to something, or being supported by something, or noticing something of beauty that no longer makes you crippled with tears and doesn't ever right away bring back uh, the memory spiritual. But yes, Mm -hmm. it's not mentioned as, well, then I became a Buddhist or then I became, you know, it's just very quiet, very much a presence there. I almost saw it as like this light energy behind you as you were going through those moments. Mm -hmm. I I feel like 
what I wrote a lot about in the book when I was starting to get back on my feet was finding um, sort of comfort in being outside and in nature. And I think, I think God can show up in lots of different places. And I think for me, that's a place that I always feel sort of the most connected. Um, and so, you know, again, without naming it at the time, when I was writing the book, I think those moments where I was really, you know, taking these long walks and paying attention to the birds and the trees and all of that was, was my sort of nascent understanding of, oh, I can find peace here somehow. And I just need to, to keep paying attention to that. And I still feel that way now. I, I definitely still feel that way now when I need to feel um, better, yeah. <laughs> for lack of a better word, yeah. I will go outside and yes. almost it almost always is helpful for me. Yes, and I, I believe there are scientific proofs coming out, not that we need them. Those of us who are turning have turned to nature as our solace, as mm -hmm. what you're calling comfort, you know, mm -hmm. and, we, and it brings us into our senses again so we can be present in the moment and recognize or my experience has been when recognize whatever it is that's hurting or is painful or is angry making whatever it is it's in your heart because now there's this other focus on uh, what's going on in the world and the chipmunks or the this or the that and the difference it's always something slightly different and it's, right. it's an enlivening right yeah yeah interesting <laughs> well it's ne neurons yeah we know neurons that fire together wire together and neurons that fire apart wire apart so if you're in a state of pain or unhappiness the best thing to do is get up and move and go uh -huh. and focus on something else because right. your brain right. is going to take you there and take you away from cogitating on the pain yeah yeah one of the things that i talk about in my own memoir that i i really like to keep repeating and i wanted your take on this uh the practice that I use for uh, as the uh, sort of incipient or earliest parts of my own healing was to take a couple of hours a week and just go into the darkness and just really feel it and remember and try to get those memories up and try to know what they are and write them down. I call that trauma writing. It is not writing. Uh, later I wrote about trauma. I call that writing trauma. But I, mm -hmm. I was trauma writing. Sometimes a cloud forest would come up, whatever. And then the rest of the week my discipline was stay positive, stay focused on what there is. We didn't have gratitude in the same way in those days. I'm talking about the late, middle 80s. Mm -hmm. But I knew to focus on the positive, and I knew that that was really important. What do you think of putting that in one place in your life where you can access it as long as you need to? Was anything like that for you? Um, yeah. Later on, it became that way for me. Early on, I wasn't able to really compartmentalize. That's not exactly what you were saying. But early Close on, enough, yeah. I think I just, the moments would come to me of, you know, this sort of flood of emotions, and there's just no turning back. There was not this, I'll deal with you later. It was like, okay, now I'm feeling really bad, so I, I, I'm in it, whether I want to be or not. Later on, I I can still have moments like that, but I can also sort of turn it off. Interestingly, when um, my daughter's birthday comes around, I have a series of rituals that I do to remember her and 
I can go back to that dark place. Pretty, <laughs> pretty much like clockwork. And so I find myself not always wanting to do those rituals, even though I, I, I do want to do it, if you know what I mean. But I know I'm going to. Definitely do. Definitely do. Hard. No, that yeah. and ritual is a very important part of who we are. Absolutely. Your body would remember it even if your mind didn't. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with women uh, who have had um, various other miscarriages or whatever the case may be, not stillbirth. I've never had that experience as you have um, with anyone. But uh, with the miscarriages even, there would be memories in their bodies around the time. And you'd, they'd start to feel bad, and then they'd talk about it. So there's some relief from having the annual memory of it. But as you're saying, it's a memory that takes you into the dark. Mm-hmm. And so sort of padding that up, you know, with things that you know will support you mm-hmm. and people you know will support you so that mm-hmm. you can come through that safely, but at the same time have honored this beautiful soul who came to you. The mm-hmm. uh, Tibetan understanding, um, that I don't know if it's of any use at all, but uh, I, I, I heard it years ago, is that some psyches just need time to finish up. Uh, in a dream. I've had two miscarriages and I, mm-hmm. I feel that that was a very helpful thing for me to, to consider, that they didn't need any more, they just needed that amount of time to finish a cycle and then they mm-hmm. could go on to something else. And so I would mm-hmm. use sort of the channel for that. And I think that may have some help for some people. I don't yeah, know. I've, I've felt that way at times too, that I, you know, she was done. Yeah. And I didn't want her to be done, but you know, she was otherwise healthy. They they couldn't identify what her cause of death was, which is is the most common outcome for stillbirths. No one really knows why. So in in my mind, I decided early on. Well, then she was done. Yeah, <laughs> and good for her. She she exactly. she got to bypass some of the hard things about being a human. You know, she missed a lot of the beautiful things about being a human, too. But that's very much how I sort of I wrapped that up in my mind early on was, you know, she went on to the next thing and wish I could have been there with her. (laughs) You may be in time to come. We never know. We are. To me, we're in a mystery. I never know how this is going to work at all. (laughs) I I agree with you. Kristen, it's been a delight. Thank you so much for coming back again to the program. Well, thank you so much. It's been an equal delight for me. I've really enjoyed this. Good. Are you working on anything right now? Are you planning to write some more? I am writing on my blog on my website, which is, um, I'll just give you the address, kristenrodemacher.com. I don't have any uh, plans for a, a book right now, but I really enjoy writing essays and um that sort of thing, so my writing can be found there. So I'm always scribbling something somewhere. <laughs> Super. Thank you again, and take good care, my friend. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it. That's all for today. Many thanks to Kevin McLeod for that lovely music, Carefree. And many thanks to all of you who make these podcasts possible. Remember, take good care of each other. Bye for now. Thank you.